Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this, this is our second episode on the saga of Barth, the god of Snifel. Or is it? Oh, it definitely is. Ah, but is it? He asked meaningfully. Okay, well, this is clearly a bit, obviously. You're doing a bit, so go ahead and tell us. Why are you doing a bit, John? Well, What's it all about? I mean, we ended the last episode by teasing that this second half of the saga might or might not actually be the work of the same author. Ah, yes, that's true. Yes, uh, we're gonna. If you if you want to, we can tackle that right away. Get the uh, I'm sorry, the old uh, academic uh, insight thing out of the way. Let's go. Did you did you have something else scheduled? No, no. But I mean, I think we ought to remind everyone of what the first part of the saga was about before we get into why this part is different. I I got my finger right here, ready to go in my mm. ear. You want to sound do that reasoning? First? Sound reasoning. Okay. Last time on. Barth Saga! Barth's story began when his father, the inimitably named troll giant King Dumb, abducted Mjol, a woman who was also a living embodiment of mountain snow. The mythic mates produced one son, Barth, before Dumb was given the old lead pipe send-off in an ambush by his trollish rivals. Barth avenged his father's dumb death with the help of his half-brother Thorkel Boundlake before relocating with a crew of monstrous characters to Iceland. Meanwhile, Barth wooed and won two wives, first Flaumgerth, the daughter of King Dolfri under the mountain, and then Tehrdrath, Hrolf's daughter, producing a baseball team's worth of daughters. Sometime later, Barth's eldest daughter, Helga, set adrift on an ice floe by her cousins, Redcloak and Solvi. Although he takes grim revenge by murdering the boys responsible, Barth cannot recover from the loss of his first and favorite child, and he retreats to a mountain hideaway. Meanwhile, Helga washes up on a Greenland shore and spends several years traveling around northern Europe in the company of Skeggy of Mithjord before being quote-unquote rescued by her father. Unimpressed with the dear old dad's cave in the mountains, Helga eventually flees, becoming a troll woman and living rough in the Icelandic wilderness. Barth as well is increasingly isolated in his mountain caves, eventually becoming something of a guardian spirit to the neighboring communities. But his occasional bouts of do-goodery are interrupted when he visits Skeggy's farm in disguise and seduces Skeggy's daughter Thordis. The bun in the oven turns out to be a boy, named Guest, after Barth's nom d'amour. <laughs> this is a good one, I like it. But Thordis doesn't have long to enjoy her new bundle of joy. Helga Barth's daughter arrives and claims the right to foster the boy who is also her father's son, as she disappears into the wilderness with her baby brother in her arms. What adventures yet await them both? Find out, this time on Osaga Thing. <laughs> is that a new flourish you've decided to add? Yeah, now I don't have to do the preview, so it, it, it's, all, it's all perfect. We're going to find <laughs> out what adventures await them. You know, there was actually a surprising amount that went on in that last episode. And yet there was almost no actual plot, surprisingly. Yes, so you're right. Last time we covered the story of Barth, the god of Snifel, and he turned out to have a fairly disjointed narrative, almost frustratingly so. Um, <laughs> and the story kind of veered between saint's life and demigod mythos. Yeah, I want to I wanna underline disjointed there. The text spent a lot of time wandering, and when it did manage to stick to one narrative for any length of time, it had virtually no storytelling follow-through. There is a lot of incident, but yeah, not much development of the actual story. 
Yeah, I agree. But that frustration on our part may have come partly from trying to make a kind of a linear sense of the story for podcast purposes. Mm -hmm. The meandering story and all those random details were pretty well in keeping with other folklore, John. Right. Well, and that's where I was taking us before the recap. There's this argument that's been made that this saga is actually two distinct pieces of work by two different authors. Yeah. And we did hint at this at the end of the last episode. So probably time to talk about it. Right. Now, as far as I can tell, this debate got kicked off by Finner Johnson in the early 20th century. Finner made a couple of fairly bold claims for Barth Saga, um, including that the author was also the author of Viglund Saga, mm-hmm. and that the saga's two halves were written by two separate authors. Right. And so we kind of waved off the connection to Viglund Saga last time. I, I just think there's not enough evidence to back that kind of thing up. And yeah, it, yeah. it strikes me as an early 20th century kind of bold claim that you see mm-hmm. quite often in that scholarship. But I, but I do think the dual authorship idea has – it's had some traction and it's kind of convincing. Right. Well, I mean the – well, I'm not sure about convincing. The problem with it is that neither of the early manuscript copies of the story show any signs at all of a break in the saga at the point where he says a separate author was involved. Now, that obviously doesn't disprove Finner automatically since we can only talk about surviving copies, not the original composition of the saga. But it does mean that the kind of evidence medievalists like best isn't bearing him out. That's true. Yeah. Of course, that's true across saga literature as a whole, John. Mm-hmm. We're missing a lot of early copies of text. So the fact that the handwriting doesn't suddenly change, it, it hardly disproves the argument for dual authorship. Oh, yeah, no, of course. Uh, and in any case, Finner's argument advances on the content of the saga, not on its physical form. He just finds the second half of the saga different and, frankly, inferior to the first part. What? He calls it a tasteless appendage, as Philip Pulciano puts it. I mean, it's an interesting point, but it does kind of spoil the milk for us, doesn't it? I mean, I guess so. I mean, hey, everyone, stick around for the less appealing second half of our story. Tasteless appendage. I mean, that yeah. that's really harsh. And yeah. honestly, I, I actually, I like the second half of the saga much better than the first part. It's so much more fun. Yeah, I'm withholding judgment for now. Uh, but that sounds like maybe you're leaning toward Finner Johnson's uh, two-author argument. Mm-hmm. You just disagree about which half is better. I mean, yeah, I'm not I'm not exactly saying that. I mean, no matter where you come down on the question of a single or multiple authorship, there's no denying that Barth's Saga varies wildly in tone from one episode to the next and uh, in, in the quality of writing, in my opinion. <laughs> um, and, and that can lead a reader to some, well, let's call it consternation. Okay. Some consternation about what the artistic and thematic goals of the text might actually be. Uh-huh. Uh, so that means that part of what we're dealing with here is a clash of expectations. We're approaching these stories with certain assumptions about what sort of narrative structure we'll find. I mean, that's true. And all readers do that to some degree or another. It's just what what they're looking for is always going to be a little bit different. Right. But this this saga doesn't just resist those expectations. It sometimes follows them, sometimes ignores them completely, sometimes kicks them over and sets them on fire. Uh, Which is fine, except that there seems to be a lack of a coherent narrative plan to put in its place. So far. No, that that's 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 fair. Uh, And I'm obviously overstating the case to make a point here. I don't think this text is being deliberately avant-garde. I I think it's just part of a different literary tradition than the one that we're reading it as. Well, I mean, there's a case to be made that it really belongs among the legendary sagas. Yes. Um, I think it's a fairly strong case for that. Or there's also a case that it's participating in other maybe broader (laughs) literary traditions that would take us outside of Iceland or even outside of Scandinavia. Yeah, I'm definitely leaning that way myself, but that's, that's a conversation for later. For now... We have to pick up this saga, which, as we said last time, really moves into a new story for its second half. Uh, last time we covered the story of Barth Snafelsas 
and to a lesser degree, his daughter Helga. Yeah, and this time we're picking up the story of Barth's son, Guest, who will take up his father's mantle. But will he live up to that old man in the mountain? Really? Part 6. Guest who's coming to dinner. Please, John. Tell me we're not just doing guest puns this entire episode. I don't I, I don't I, know if I could take I, I it. I mean, I, I could tell you that. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. So at this point in the saga, we jump forward about 12 years from where we left off. If you remember, our last episode ended with Helga taking baby guest as a fosterling and guest mother Thordis eventually marrying Thorbjorn Grenjardison. So in the intervening years, she and Thorbjorn have had two sons, Thorvald and Thord. And she's been busy raising these boys and helping run a very successful farm. It all sounds very comfortable. Uh, I mean, of course, there is the small matter of the very tall woman who's coming over the horizon as we're speaking with a 12-year-old boy at her side. Oh, my. Well, life's never perfect. <laughs> I mean, we, we can assume that Thordis is happy to see her firstborn son again, right? I mean, I mean we can assume that, but the, the, text never, the text never mentions it one way or another. Uh, instead, Thordis just asks the tall woman who she is. Yeah, no, I can't help but feel like that's really a question she should have asked before giving away the baby. It's folklore, Andy. It's folklore. Yeah, that's going to be our answer a lot, I think, going forward. Yeah. Uh, and Helga says, I am Helga, the daughter of Barth Snafosas, but I have traveled widely with guest, for my home isn't in one place. I feel I should also tell you that I am your son Guest's sister, and Barth is the father of us both. You know, apart from the verse she spoke last time, I think that's the longest speech that Helga makes in this entire saga. Yeah, uh, she's the strong, silent type, like but father, like daughter. Very well spoken, though. Um, Thordis listens to all of this, and her only response is, well, that seems unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, to be fair to Thordis, is a reasonable response to this whole thing. Uh, it might be true, but it does seem unlikely. It does. Uh, and remember that she's named this kid Guest after his father's supposed name. Of course, we did also say that a stranger who shows up at the door calling himself Guest might as well be calling himself Stranger T. Fake Mustache. Well, I mean, as it happens, Thordis doesn't have to wait long for the paternity to be confirmed. The following spring, Barth himself shows up to collect his son. And the two of them head off into the mountains together. Yeah, and we know that Barth and Helga can barely stand each other. So are we sure they're not just leaving the kid with Thordis for a winter so they can avoid having to interact directly? It's like a drop-off point. Yes, exactly. No, probably a neutral not. point. This this just seems like a demarcation of the difference in their relationship with guests. And Helga takes responsibility for raising him, and then Barth takes control of the quote unquote responsibility of making a man of him. Right, and that that does fit the pattern we've seen in other sagas, especially mm -hmm. in the more fanciful legendary ones. Right, uh, Kalnasinga saga, for example, had this sequence with different results. Right, Bui and Ridison had nothing to do with his son Yokel until Yokel was old enough to seek him out himself. Of course, Bui then forced Yokel to kill him in a fight. Yeah, well, the twist of Guest's sister being the one to care for him is kind of new. It's it's an mm -hmm. interesting twist on this. Thordis is kind of frozen out of raising Guest at all. Barth does bring her a nice set of clothes, though, which is about oh, nice. all the thanks or apology he offers for Guest's existence. Um, <laughs> and then Barth and young Guest take off into the wilderness. Right. Now, we're not done with Thordis and more to the point her family yet, though. Definitely so. not. Keep her and her sons in the back of your mind. But for now, Guest spends his teen years with his dad, and he learns all the skills that Barth knows. Uh, you know, actually, that is that is quite a list at this point. 
Um, Barth learned fighting, ancient lore, and genealogy back during his time as an adolescent in the court of King Dofri under the mountain. He also learned magic, has the gift of foresight, he's shown to be unmatched in his knowledge of the law, and of course, he's basically become a land spirit at this point. We can add that he's a fairly skilled survivalist as well. He's been living in the mountains for at least a generation. True, although I would lump that in with the land spirit part of the resume. Okay, so maybe less of a survivalist and more of a minor divinity. Although those are usually pretty good at surviving, so. Right. (laughs) Uh, So the upshot is that Guest is going to be one of those most impressive men of his generation types. Sure. So what a promising young man like that needs is a chance to show off. And his first chance comes when a troll woman named Heat invites Barth, Guest, and Barth's cousin, Thorkel Skinswath, to a Yule feast. Again with calling people trolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, this author uses that word differently and more widely than we might expect. Oh, just wait. She also invites other notable recluses and troublemakers from around the area, including oh Gudrun Dirthwidow mm-hmm. and her son Kalf, a troll woman named Yora and uh, from Yorokleif, a troll woman named Yora from Yorokleif, and a giant named Kolbjorn and all of his friends, and several others that we don't need to go into right now. Right. Now, there is a reason for this list of people to exist, though. What we're, what we're getting here is a group of names with vague links to various folktales and stories in the Icelandic past. Yeah, well, I did include the Yora. You did, and mm-hmm. I appreciate it. Um, this is a woman who's got her own stories, and I think we have to take just a minute and tell her tale. Okay. It's a short one, and I think it explains why our rock is where it is. You know what? You go ahead. Given our author's tendency to wander off from his story... I don't think he gets to complain if we do the same. Go ahead. Very fair. (laughs) Uh, So the story of Yora is one of the folktales collected in the 19th century book of Icelandic folktales by Jón Arneson. It seems Yora was a young giant woman who kept house and cooked for her father. Her father had a horse, which Yora was very fond of. One day she learned that her father had entered the horse in a horse fight, and Yora and the other women of the house went to watch the fight. But Yora's favorite was soon losing the fight, and Yora flew into a rage at the sight of it. She waded into the fight, grabbed the other horse, and tore its leg off at the thigh. Wow. I I did say she was a giant woman. (laughs) Uh, Then she fled the fight with the leg trailing along behind her on the grass, and no one could stop her. She ran to Ulfus River, but it was too wide for her to cross it, and so she grabbed a huge rock and flung it into the middle of the water, and then she hopped once onto the rock and once more onto the far shore. She escaped and had many other adventures, and the boulder she used to ford the river is now called Trollwife's Leap, or just Yora's Leap. A lovely story. Mm-hmm. Now, just remind me why we're including it. Well, Yora's a guest at the Yule Feast. Yes, but this is about as relevant as she's going to get in the saga, so... Yeah, but also I'm, I'm fascinated by the way the author includes these little nods to other folklore. Mm-hmm. It's placing Barth saga alongside a genre tradition that might be a better fit than looking at it as other kinds of saga, especially as lending a saga. Okay. So we've nodded to the folklore as it went by. Uh, let's get to the Yule party, shall we? Party on, Andy. Party on, John. So hit, so hit the troll woman's party is a great success. So hit the troll woman's party is a great success with everyone having a good time and maybe having a little bit too much to drink. It's not uh, a bit too much, Andy. <laughs> the the text says something like, the drinking was completely out of control and everyone got stupefied. Look, it's Yule, man. Kicking back, <laughs> drinking yourself goofy, 
playing bizarre after dinner games. It's just how things go, especially in sure. this part of the saga. And in this case, when Heat asks Barth to choose the evening entertainment, well, Barth decides they should play the skin throwing game. The skin throwing game. Yes. Now, let's say purely for the sake of argument that someone, hard as this may be to imagine, but let's say someone doesn't know what the skin throwing game is. Well, that hypothetical person would be in non-hypothetical luck because we actually have an answer. Our author, unlike so many other saga writers, isn't content to just say they played a ball game or Mm -hmm. many games were played during the party. No, no, no. We actually get a complete explanation of the skin throwing game here. Uh Uh-huh. And? Well, honestly, it's slightly ridiculous, but I think I get it. (laughs) You take a bear skin or some other kind of large skin and you roll it up real tight and secure. And then you toss it around by four men who are standing in a square. And there's a fifth man who is called the outsider. And he's supposed to try to steal the hide. So it's kind of like... Yeah, it's monkey in the middle. They're playing monkey yeah. in the middle with a rolled up bearskin. That's right. Then the bearskin is quite large, of course. So it's going to be heavy mm-hmm. and hard to catch. Um, that, right. That's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Right. Now, depending on where you grew up, you, you might know this game as piggy in the middle or keep away or sucker or mm-hmm. any one of a dozen other names. Uh, the point is they're playing this very physical game with grown men who are drunkenly shoving each other and generally ratcheting up the tension level. Men? Uh, they're they're more than men. They're large, right. monstrous figures. Trolls, giants, you ogres, name it. whatever, yeah. They, you know, they could play tiddlywinks, though. Why, why wouldn't they Seriously? play that? Seriously? No, not really. <laughs> um, they're taking turns as the guy in the middle, but when it's mm-hmm. time for the giant Kolbjorn to be it... He starts playing more and more aggressively. This Kolbjorn is a troublesome figure. Mm-hmm. And then he finally takes a leap toward Barth to try to disrupt the throw of the skin. This is the weirdest game. Is it, though? I could see playing this game. <laughs> Maybe at next Kalamazoo. You, uh, me, we get two other people. we have to insist on an imitation bearskin. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, this is the moment when guest Barthson emerges as an active figure in the saga. Guest elected to remain sitting during the game, but when he sees Kolbjorn crouch to leap at his father, Guest just reaches out with his foot and trips Kolbjorn. And Kolbjorn, who was off balance, springs forward and promptly face plants so hard on the stone floor that he breaks his nose. Mm-hmm. Now there's an instant uproar and Kolbjorn has to be restrained from killing Guest. The other guests pull him away, arguing that no violence should mar this party or insult Hit's home. And so Guest gets away with it for now. But Kolbjorn clearly intends to take some form of revenge. I mean, Guest's active, but he's basically just that jerk in your eighth grade math class who thought it would be funny to trip you on your way to the board. I don't... Oh, that's right, Justin. I haven't forgotten, tough guy. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, so one more thing happens at Hit's Yule celebration, which is that Hit gives her guests parting gifts... And Guest gets the gift of a loyal and intelligent dog named Snouty. Not, uh, just to be clear for our English language audience, not Snouty, like he has a long snout. Snouty, uh, Mm S-N-A-T-I. Right, and it means wisdom. Right, so Guest and his canine genius are primed for adventure, Sherman and Mr. Peabody style. But uh, Colbjorn's a dangerous enemy for a boy and his dog. Quiet, you. Part 7. Love in the Time of Cave Dwellers. 
Now this next story takes place sometime after the Yule Feast where Colbjorn's pride was hurt by guests' trip. Yeah, it's at least summer now, but whether it's the summer immediately following Yule or not isn't really clear, nor is it terribly important. Right, and we're shifting back now to the farm of Thorbjorn of Tunga, the husband of Thordis. Right, now let's remind everyone who they are real quick. Sure, yeah, go ahead. That's important. Uh, now, Thordis, remember, is the mother of Guest, or we said to keep her in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to be important for this brief episode. And we mentioned Thorbjorn a little while ago, but it's easy to forget with all the names we throw at you. It's a lot to take in. He's a wealthy farmer with a herd of more than 500 sheep, and he's the man who married Thordis after Barth disappeared. Right, and that seems like 500 is a lot of sheep. It is. I'd guess it could be a challenge keeping track of all those sheep, John. I assume he just counts them at night before he goes to bed. Uh, Ah, But if he doesn't, he's got a man for that. A man. Yes. One man. His name is Gust. Gust. Yeah, I don't think his name's important, actually. Um, How does one man keep track of... (laughs) Gust. It's a strong man. How does uh, Gust keep track of 500 sheep? With a watchful eye, Andy. With a watchful eye. Okay. Oh, and uh, right. Thorbjorn and Thordis have two sons. Right? Um, the the older one is Thord, the younger is Thorvald, and they're also important from this point forward. Quite right, quite right. Uh, but before we get to Thord and Thorvald, let's go back to those sheep, shall we? What else is there to say about them? They're sheep, fluffy, white, standing on a hillside. Somewhere there's a lonely goat herd. <laughs> no, at some point during the summer... All of the sheep, old Gusts, the shepherd, was put in charge of, disappear completely. Oh, that's troubling. Especially for Gusts, yeah. yeah. And after searching everywhere in the valley for three straight days, he heads home to confess his failure to Thorbjorn. And how does Thorbjorn take it? Not well at all. Mm. He gives Gusts a good scolding, John. Mm-hmm. And then Thorbjorn rides over to his father-in-law's house. Right. Now, remember, that's Skeggy from Midfjord, the guy who took in Helga Barth's daughter after she arrived in Greenland on her ice cube. Yes. Uh, when Skeggy hears about the missing sheep, he suspects foul play, saying that it may be that the trolls feel that they have some reason for revenge, but are forbidden to attack their target directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all that suggests that Kolbjorn the Ogre is harboring a grudge over his Yuletide trip. Right. And that's what it looks like to Skeggy. And Skeggy would know because he's been interacting with trolls and ogres and giants for most of the saga now. Right. So Skeggy has advice. Uh, he mm-hmm. advises Thorbjorn to have his sons, Thord and Thorvald, look for the sheep, since they are the likeliest targets of the cave dwellers. See, Now that, to me, doesn't seem like a good plan at all. Well, how else is he going to get the sheep back, Andy? Uh, throwing his sons in the direct path of an ogre seeking revenge? Exactly. Uh-huh. If you've got any other ideas, I'm sure Thorbjorn would love to hear them. Well, when Thord hears about this plan, he's understandably confused, but willing to try his best, because, as he says, it might be that my kinsman Skeggy has seen something in the situation that will bring us honor in the doing. <laughs> you got to appreciate this kid's optimism. <laughs> you know, he's young, dumb, uh-huh. and he's ready for an adventure. Sure. So Thord and Thorvald look everywhere hiking all throughout the nearby mountains for those sheep. They they don't have much luck, though. And by midday, they decide to split up. And Thorvald agrees to search the hills and mountains further to the southwest of Tunga. And Thord, he's going to search the southern end of Hrutafjardadal. Which is dangerous territory. Now, back in chapter 13, we were told that Kolbjorn lived in a cave in Brittostothner. 
uh, near the nope. bottom of Hudafjordal. Okay, that that'll work. Okay, and All that's right. exactly where Thord is heading. It is yes, and he seems to suspect the potential danger of this trajectory. He turns to his brother as they are ready to part, and he asks him to give his regards to their parents, to their friends, and their family because, as he says, it is very likely that I won't be coming back. So he's either brave or very dramatic. Uh, He's he's, a little bit of both. Yeah. He's clearly sending Thorvald away from the danger to protect him. He's taking the burdens of the risk on his own shoulders. Right. And he's right. Thorvald's search proves fruitless, but safe. And he arrives home that night with no sheep, but with his skin intact. Mm -hmm. But there's no sign of Thord. Yes. Now back to Thord. Not long after he enters the valley of Hrutafjardadal, he was swallowed up by a thick fog. And he's barely able to see his hand in front of his face. And so Thor loses his way. And now we're in a horror movie. And all of a sudden, he notices there's a man near him in the fog. Oh, yeah. Not creepy at all. So Thor sets off in that direction, attempting to catch him. But as he draws nearer, he realizes it's not a man at all. It's a woman. And he's just close enough to see that this is a beautiful and young woman. Medium height. She's well-dressed out, as it says. And he rushes to meet up with her, but the closer he gets, the farther she gets away. And then she disappears altogether. Yeah, this is is the moment, this is the bad moment in the horror movie, Thord. Turn around. So Thord wanders through this fog, working his way deeper and deeper into the valley. And suddenly he hears a terrible noise. And then, standing before him is a man. Or something shaped like a man. And I think I should let the saga uh, cover this one. This man was large and big-boned. Bowed was his back and bent were his knees. He had a face so ugly and hideous that Thord thought he had never seen the likes of it. His nose was broken in three places marked by huge knots. And because of that, (laughs) it seemed triply twisted, like the horns of old rams. He had a huge iron staff in his hands. Hello there, Thorg. Uh, he- hello. Who who are you? I am Kolbjorn, and I rule over this valley. Greetings, Kolbjorn. I I am looking for my father's sheep, a herd of about five hundred. Have you seen them around here? I will not deny that. I caused the disappearance of your father's flock. I mean, at least he's honest. I mean, honest is a strong word for Colbjorn, but he is telling the truth about the flock. Uh, He also asks Thord if he might have seen anyone else while searching the valley. And when Thord says that he had seen a lovely woman in the distance, Colbjorn's eyes widen. That would have been my daughter, Solrun. An ogre's daughter. Mmm, lucky Thord. I mean, in this saga, that's not a that's not a terribly unusual uh, qualification, right. but... No, I shall make you an offer, Thord, and you may choose whichever you like best. Lose your flock and return home with not one single head, because, I'll admit, I'm not particularly fond of some of your family. All because guests tripped him. I mean, what a petty ogre. All of this? Come on. <laughs> or... We could make a deal. I'll give you my daughter in marriage, and then you can have the sheep back. Wait a second, what? He better get a better look at the ogre's daughter before agreeing to this, John. 
I've read enough folk tales to know <laughs> this is probably a dangerous deal. Uh-huh. Well, I, I appreciate that you're playing along, Andy. I try. Now, Thorth is suspicious, which is understandable under the circumstances, uh, but he is intrigued by the prospect, and he says, My kinsman may feel I agreed too quickly, but this woman seemed to me someone who would not be mismatched if married to a vigorous fellow. Ooh. <laughs> Thord apparently thinks himself a vigorous fellow. That is exactly what Thord thinks. Now, Kolbjorn rubs his hands together and eagerly agrees to the match. He tells Thord to return in a fortnight and meet him in a cave in Brattigil for the wedding feast. He's welcome to bring as many guests as he likes, except for just a few men who won't be permitted under any circumstances. Oh, really? Well, mm-hmm. well, who's on Kolbjorn's naughty list? Uh, well, for starters, Skeggy from Midfjord and his son, Aid. Okay. Thord Bellower, Thorgils the Wise, Thorbjorn Ox, and Alvin Shaft. Okay. It's a, it's a reasonably lengthy list. It's very uh-huh. specific. And I was looking at it and thinking, there's no reason given in the saga that I can tell for these men being banished from the feast. But they are the men who live closest to Thord's family's property at Tunga, right? So maybe it's just that Colburn doesn't want Thord showing up with men of consequence. Is that what it is? I mean, I think that might be part of it. I mean, these are also a lot of his extended family, so it is kind of removing some of Thord's support network. Yeah. Um, and he also makes it very clear that, speaking of support network, Thord may not invite any quick cave dwellers or any ogres. And least of all, Bard Snaffersash and his followers. Uh-huh. Yeah. So basically, he's telling Bard to show up to his wedding feast with no backup, no support. That's what it looks like. Well, Thorth uh, happily agrees, <laughs> and they shake hands on this matter. Kolbjorn then walks Thorth part of the way home and leads him directly to the spot where the sheep are all gathered together. Hooray! The sheep are okay. They are indeed. And while Thorbjorn and Thorvald are happy to see Thorth returning with the sheep, they're less pleased with the plot that Thorth is now caught up in. Right, no, of course they're not. But they do promise to support him as best they can, which doesn't really mean much given the circumstances. Yeah, and when the date of this feast arrives, Thorv and Thorvald travel back to Hrutafjarradal and to a large cave. And they step inside, and they find the air to be both cold and foul. But rather than step back outside into the fresh air, they just sit down and wait for someone to show up. Now, I keep thinking Thord is smart, but he keeps doing things like this. I mean, he's just trusting that everything's going to work out. And after a little while they see a large man entering the cave and he's got a large dog with him. Uh, So I think you can probably guess who this is, but mm -hmm. if not, he cleverly tells Thord and Thorvald, I am a guest here. Yeah. And the brothers agree that this is true. He is a guest. (laughs) It's uh, one of our likely candidates for notable witticisms in a saga that is a bit short on them. You're definitely not talking about Guest introducing himself as a guest, are you? No, no, that the the brothers agree when this man enters the cave and says he's a guest. It's it's almost like they're rolling their eyes at Guest's terrible pun. Well, I'm I'm with them, John. We here at Saga Thing cannot stand a bad pun. (laughs) Truer words have never been spoken on this podcast. Mm Mm-hmm. Any puns you may think you've heard on the podcast are clearly a result of your own either poor hearing or misinference. Exactly. We would never. Now, 
This guest asks if Thor would mind if he and his dog attended the feast, and Thor agrees, suspecting that this strange man might actually be a useful companion. Well, he proves useful right away. Um, He leads the two brothers into a rear chamber of the cave, and inside, they find the young woman called Solrun, this is the daughter, sitting in a chair with her hair tied to the back of her chair, Mm -hmm. and her hands are bound. She's thin and starving, and her skin is hanging like cloth over her bones. And though she looks quite different from the beauty that Thor saw in the fog, he recognizes her right away and immediately frees her. And as the saga says, he fell deeply in love with her and he kissed her tenderly. That's very sweet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, Solrun explains that Kolbjorn will be furious if he finds them in her room. Turns out that Solrun is not Kolbjorn's daughter, but a young woman he had abducted from Greenland. According to Solrun, Kolbjorn plans to use her as a slave and concubine. Yes. Now, the translation that we're using, the one by Sarah Anderson, says that mm-hmm. he intends to use her as a slut. Uh, the Ralph O'Connor translation says mistress. Now, the word in the original is uh, fritla, uh, which comes from the Old Norse fritla. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this term does mean mistress or concubine, but slut kind of works in this context, I guess. Uh, mistress seems to be the most common translation of fritla in other texts, but whether you're looking at modern or medieval. Well, look at you. Mm. I had no idea I'd be getting a lecture on the language of concubinage tonight. Concubinage. Mm. Oh, well, you've always just uh, taken that position for granted, haven't you? No, no. We're not going to be inappropriate here. Oh, me? On the podcast? Never. Uh, But in all seriousness, John, we raised some questions about the treatment of Helga by Skeggy in our last episode. Mm -hmm. Skeggy took her in as a very, very young woman and had a sexual relationship with her until they returned to Iceland and she ran off to rejoin her father. Uh, And I'm just going to point out that the running off is a bit inaccurate because, in fact, Barth came and took her away from Skeggy. And she expresses some regret over that. She does have a rough go of that. Yeah, you're right about that. Now, Solrun's story is at least similar in some ways and at least suggests an interest on the part of the author in the plight of young women at the hands of older men. True. No, absolutely. I think that's that's one of those things you can find as a through line in this saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Skeggy, you know, we really struggled with that last time because Skeggy is never really made out to be the bad guy, uh, even though kind of we as re- as readers kind of want him to be portrayed that way. Yeah. It's quite the opposite, if anything. I mean, he turns into a figure of wisdom and support to Thord's family. Yeah. So the issue of the author's take on Skeggy's relationship with Helga, it's not clear to me just yet. The, the soul run situation here is abundantly clear, right? She's been abducted. She's been treated like an object. Uh, she's been, I mean, tied up against mm-hmm. her will, right? So she's being restrained. She's been chained up. Uh, and she's destined to become the sexual property of a monstrous man against her will. Yeah, It's horrific stuff. And this saga addresses the issue, frankly, a lot more directly than most sagas. It's, a, it's an interesting change of pace. It is, yes. Now, Solrun goes on to reveal Kolbjorn's whole plot. As everyone has by now suspected, the plan was to lure Thor and his brother to Kolbjorn's cave under false pretenses and then kill them. It's very rude. Yes, but don't worry. Thor is here. And he mm-hmm. promises to save her. And then he leaves the room with Thorvald and his guest. Wait, wait, wait. What about Solrun? They leave her in the chair. And she stays there? Of course she does, yes. You think that running away into the valley altogether right now will solve this problem? This is a kind of problem that needs to be resolved immediately and directly. And you'll see some quick action on okay. the part of these boys. 
Yeah. So so they head back <laughs> into the main hall. And by main hall, we mean other part of the cave mm-hmm. to await Colbjorn's arrival. It isn't long before he stomps through the door with a large crew of 30 ogres and other monsters. Ooh, John, mo- what kind of monsters? No, it doesn't say. I, that was a quote. Other monsters. That's lame. That's very lame. Sorry. Colbjorn uh, appears to be in a bad mood, although I'm not sure he has any others. Uh, but he does proceed with his plan. He sets up tables and arranges for the feast. Guest Thor and Thorvald all sit on one bench with the dog Snotty lying at their feet. Good old Snotty. A Thingman candidate if ever there was one, John. Uh, we'll see. Snotty might just make a case for himself. Uh, the ogres and monsters arrange themselves on the other benches, but the bride is conspicuously absent. Now, can I can I interrupt here? You just did. Because I, I feel, I, I, I really can't help but feel like this story is told in the wrong order, right? <laughs> They've already revealed the trick. So uh-huh. we already know what the plot is and we know why the bride is absent. We're just, I guess, waiting for things to get nasty now. Right. I mean, to put the the kindest light on it I can, I mean, that's perhaps where the tension of this scene is meant to come from. Okay. Right. It's 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 the moment in a movie or a book where they start at the end and then show you how they got there. Right. That that uh that hoary old chestnut. <laughs> yes. Uh, you you then get to watch from the beginning when everyone is happy and getting along, and all the while you know that it's going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Right. But but where and how and when and that's the tension. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Again, uh, I'm saying this is the kindest possible interpretation. Sure. But if the if the goal is to kill Thord and his brother, why not just do it? Why mm-hmm. set up an actual feast? They're going to have a feast here. I mean, it's fun. How often do you get to see a troll feast? Not too often, I'll be honest with you. And this one is pretty great. So why don't you go ahead and uh, describe it or read it to us? Uh, sure, I'm just going to read it. Uh, food was brought to Gilfiger. That's uh, Colburn's best buddy. Uh, and the other benchmates. There was both horse meat and human flesh. They began to eat, ripping the flesh from the bones like eagles and hunting bitches. See, I like that. It's a particularly well-written scene. This whole kind of moment is great. I, I, I like the image of these monsters eating like eagles, ripping the flesh from the bones. And you can just see if you ever watch a documentary where birds are eating flesh, you see that stringy, bloody meat stretching from the bone, Oof. hanging from their lips as they chew. Are oh. you enjoying yourself right now? It's great. You're having a good time? I mean, it was written so long ago, and I'm still loving it even today. That's good I'll stuff. Have you, I'll have you know I had jerk chicken for dinner, and you're making me really oh, sick. Oh, great. Uh, now, the the addition of horse meat and human flesh is a nice touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely the food of monsters. You get the impression that they they surprised a young warrior riding his horse through the valley. <laughs> now yes. this is dinner. <laughs> uh, and that, that further increases the tension that's building in this scene. As Thor watches and presumably imagines his own body being rendered apart and picked over by uh, Colbjorn and his friends. Yeah. You know, we're also told that Colbjorn's mother is at this feast, but she's hidden away in an inner vault of the cave. Apparently, Colbjorn doesn't want her around when his friends are over. Well, they're a rowdy bunch. Uh, now, before you know it, they're they're drunk and looking to play a game. We're back to this again. Yes. Uh, we're at drunken parties in caves and games. Uh, Colbjorn... Approaches Thor, then throws a giant arm over his shoulder with his ale-soaked breath and bits of flesh stuck between his teeth. He says, Now, what would you like to do for fun, my kinsman-to-be? 
again, could probably just kill Thor right now. You got him right yep. there in your arm. Um, but, you know, you don't got to handle this like a, a Bond villain, Thorbjorn. The party can wait. A Bond villain? Really? Kill him. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I suppose a lot of Bond villains like have secret lairs and caves and volcanoes and things. It makes sense. They throw sense. parties. They delay, delay, delay. Sure, Come sure. On, just get to it. Uh, but there's no fun in it, Andy. There's no fun in not uh, dragging this out. <laughs> well, let's let's see what happens. Guest speaks up before Thor gets a chance to respond, and he suggests that they have a game of joint throwing or perhaps wrestling. Ah, joint throwing. It's the classic family party game. It's a Thanksgiving tradition here at my house. Sure it is. And the idea is to take a large joint, like a knuckle bone or a hawk, and you just throw it at each other in what I assume is a kind of dodgeball-style game. Uh, I guess. I, mean, I think that makes some kind of sense. Uh, one of the ogres, who's a fellow named Glaum, uh, picks up a joint and throws it very hard at Thor's midsection. Now, Guest anticipates that throw and catches it in midair. And then he throws it back as violently as he can. It hits Glom in the eye so hard that his eye pops out and hangs down in his cheek. And, as the saga says, Glom did not like this and growled like a wolf cur. Best bloodshed candidate right there. <laughs> We've actually got a few good candidates coming, coming yeah, up. Yeah, we do. Now, another ogre, Glom's foster brother, picks up the bone and throws it at Thorvald. Now, Thord catches this one and throws it back, smashing the ogre's cheekbone and jaw. Now, all hell breaks loose. I mean, they asked to play this game. They did. I, they did. <laughs> now, everybody stays remarkably committed to the joint throwing game, though. Uh, Scrom, an ogre from Thumberdal, uh, grabs a large shank and hurls it at Guest, who then returns it with such force that it breaks Scrom's thigh bone in two, as well as smashing the hands he was trying to catch it with. A hit. A palpable hit. You know, speaking of, do you know that I played Osric and Hamlet in high school? Did you? That I actually, that was my, my the only line I can remember from my character was a hit, a very palpable hit. Yes. Uh, now, Colbjorn stands up and shouts that the game should be stopped. At Christ's hands, we'll all be harmed. He wasn't supposed to be here at this banquet. Well, Guest responds, oh, well, that's the way it goes. Uh, yeah, and the, because the game ends now. Yeah. Uh, rather than shutting the feast down, though, everyone continues drinking into the night, and eventually everyone starts getting sleepy. Colbjorn invites his best friend Gjufagir, uh, Guppy, and Ger to join him in his bedchamber. And this leaves Thord and Thorvald and Guest out in the main hall with all of those monsters. Well, I mean, yes, but Guest isn't having it. He encourages them to follow him, and make their beds elsewhere, which they do. Yes, and they wait until everyone falls asleep. And then Guest stands up, draws his sword, and enters the main hall. Right, and that can only mean one thing, which means That's... music screech. <laughs> uh, it's heavy metal guitars blasting. Right, it's troll chopping time. He kills every <laughs> monster in the room, which is a count somewhere near 30. But we're going to mm-hmm. have to argue about that when we get to the body count in the Judgments episode. Now, Guest also wants to kill Kolbjörn, but the chamber he's in has a heavy lock on the door, and Guest doesn't want to tamper with it for fear of waking Kolbjörn and his friends. And finally, at long last, he returns to Solrun's room to fetch her. And now she comes with him, but says they're all probably going to die. And to be honest, (laughs) it's a fair guess on her part, given her experience. Oh no, she doesn't know who she's dealing with. 
Guest and Thor aren't going to be easy to kill. Not at all. So Guest returns to wake up his companions, and they are surprised but pleased to see all the dead trolls. And with Solrun by their side, they now rush out of the cave and down into the valley. Right, but but Colbjorn's mother is still to be accounted Mm -hmm. for. Remember, she was hanging out in the back room, right? This huge ancient troll woman called Skrukka. She wakes up in her chamber just as they were leaving, and she knows immediately what the humans have done. Swelling with anger, she rushes into Colbjorn's room, smashing through the large door so that it breaks into tiny splinters. She shouts at Colbjorn to wake up and tells him that his guests have all been killed. She urges him to give chase. Colbjorn agrees to run after guests and the boys, but not before his mother. Because she's mm-hmm. so fast and furious, she's going to be able to outflank them by running <laughs> up over the ridges. I'm sorry, would you say she's both fast and furious? She is. I don't have a colon. Is it is it possible that she's too fast? She might just and be too, furious? too fast and too furious. If I knew the mm-hmm. type, you know, this is the second time that this, this film thing has come up on the on the podcast. <laughs> um, I don't know enough about those films to go further than to say that she's very fast and very furious. Right. Let me ask you whether she manages to Tokyo drift around the mountain to catch up <laughs> with these guys. <laughs> I think I think she might. Yes, because the goal Wonderful. is to outflank them by running up over the ridges. And Colbjorn mm-hmm. says Colbjorn says that he and his buddies are going to take the low road through the valleys. You take the high road and we'll take the low road and we'll kill the humans together. Alrighty. <laughs> I have a sore throat, Andy. All right. That is the plan. You may be able to tell. Okay. Um, you could go higher and then, yeah, I, I don't know how. I, I can't go high, Andy. I'm tone deaf and my voice only has this one register. Also, it's very important to note when you sing that song, it's got to be in a Scottish accent. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be. I'm pretty sure it does. It's in the it's in the liner notes. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it's definitely the plan. Now, Thor soon realizes that they're being followed. And he recognizes that they're going to be caught very soon. So he suggests they stop instead of running and just meet their pursuers head on. Now, Solrun, you can imagine, is not terribly happy about this idea. And she reminds them once again, they're all going to die. Right. Now, Guest isn't convinced. Um, one, he knows they're coming, right? Mm-hmm. He uh, he hobs and shaw them. Uh, but he says that fate will decide who lives or dies. <laughs> <laughs> he... Uh, he suggests they divide up their forces. Yeah. Uh, Thor will take on Kolbjorn. See, now that seems to me a bit unfair because Kolbjorn is the biggest threat. Well, no, Guest knows this, but in a move that I have to say is remarkably clear thinking for a protagonist, he says it's only fair that Thor take care of this because they were put into this situation by Thor when he agreed to marry Solrun in the first place. Still, I mean, you're right, yeah, but it's a tough challenge. It is. Uh, and Thorvald is going to have to take on Gapi. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guest will take on Agufagir, uh, and Snotty, the dog, will battle Corbion's mother. I love this dog. <laughs> now, what about Solrun? Uh, who does she get to take on? Uh, Guest tells her to sit back and watch the sport. Oh, how chivalrous. <laughs> now, sure enough, the ogres come rushing forward, closing the distance between them. Colbjorn clashes with Thor. Uh, the two of them roll around in a fierce wrestling match. Snotty had run up the hillside to a cliff above the path. Uh, when Skruka, the troll woman, runs by, Snouty pushes rocks down on top of her. Uh, she grimaces when they hit, but then she throws them back. 
And then Snouty leans into a large boulder. Uh, That one falls down and lands on the spine of the monstrous mother, breaking her back in two and killing her. Oh, Snotty, you're my hero. Oh, he's such a good boy. Yes, he is. Oh, he's such a good boy. (laughs) He really is. Now, Guest meets Glufrager, and the two exchange blows. As the ogre rushes to attack, Guest catches his blow with the wrist and slides in, pushing his hip into the monster's waist. And using Glufrager's momentum and the leverage of his hip, he turns and flips the ogre up into the air. Then Guest brings him down with such great force straight onto his head, so hard that his skull fractures into tiny pieces. And Glufrager dies shortly after. I'm sorry, shortly after? Uh, probably yeah. immediately. I, I can't imagine there's much of a wait there. I, I mean, it's what the saga says. I mean, maybe it's a bit of uh, classic saga Lytotes. There you go. Uh, yeah. Now, in the meantime, let's not forget Thorvald. He's supposed to be fighting Guppy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. And he held his own pretty well, but he's quickly overwhelmed because he's the younger brother. Mm-hmm. Now, fortunately, Guest had just finished dashing out the brains of his opponent, and he's ready for more. So he sees Thorvald about to fall, and he rushes to help. And with a well-aimed swing of the sword, he strikes off both of Gapi's legs just above the knees. And Gapi falls backward. So uh, what about Thor, John? Mm. How's he doing? Well, he's still rolling around with Kolbjorn and holding his own. But Kolbjorn is a giant, or possibly an ogre, or maybe a troll, uh, since he's called all of those things. Uh, He's got massive strength, and it's proving to be a bit much for Thor. Kolbjorn manages to roll Thor over and sits on top of him, ready to move in for the kill. But just as he leans forward to finish Thor, Guest comes up from behind, grabs Kolbjorn by the hair, places a knee in his back, and yanks backward as hard as he can, instantly dislocating Kolbjorn's neck. That's gotta hurt. That sounds unpleasant. Yes. Uh, Thor pushes the massive body of the now dead, or at least uh, paralyzed and dying, Kolbjorn off of himself and stands up. They did it, John. Yes, they did. This is one of the best saga fight scenes that we've done. I mean, it's it's right up there with the Hlitherendi uh, slam fight. I mean, there's a lot of action in this one. Right? It's mm-hmm. a and it's a it's a pleasure to see an author kind of painting a clear picture of everything that happens rather than just listing out wounds and deaths. Right? You can actually sort of you can see where they all are in relation to one another during the fight. So well done, Barth Saga author. We've given you a hard time, but you handled this one very well. Absolutely. So Solren is freed from the clutches of Kolbjorn. The threat of the ogre's revenge is finally at an end. Thor thanks uh, Guest for his help and offers him a reward. Guest says he doesn't want any treasure, but he would appreciate it if his brothers could arrange passage for him to Norway. Now, why would he want to go to Norway? Because he's heard of a great king there and he wants to go meet him. So Guest is feeling the call of the great King Olaf Tryggvason. Yes, he is. And that suggests that this noble, pagan, half-troll figure is about to be redeemed through conversion. Well, perhaps. Uh, But in the meantime, he explains to both Thor and Thorvald that, in fact, they are all brothers, because that actually hadn't been revealed to Thor and Thorvald yet, even though we've known it for quite some time. They all share the same mother, Thordis. Now, with that big reveal, Guest heads back into the hills, promising to meet them in the spring when the ship is ready to take him to Norway. And Thor heads home with his new wife and his brother, mm-hmm. and everyone lives happily ever after. See, I love that story. I told you it was ooh, good. Ooh, 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 ooh. We're not done. We're not? Not by a long shot. Well, how long of a shot? We've been going for a while. Uh, it's, it's quite a respectable range of fire, actually. <laughs> uh, there's still an entire voyage to Norway, the meeting with Olaf, and a full-on quest narrative into the wilds of Hilleland. That's a lot. 
Yep. This uh this this second half might not be <laughs> a half. This might be a three episode <laughs> saga, John. You know, I, I wasn't planning on spending three episodes on this silliness, but I think you might be right. It's getting pretty late. And this saga just keeps chugging along. It does, yeah. Does this mean we're actually feeling better about this, though? I didn't say that. But I am willing to go one more episode. I like it. I like it. Okay. Uh, Then we're going to leave Guest and his friends preparing for their next adventure. Okay. And hopefully they level up in in the time that they're uh, preparing. Right. Well, funny you should say that, as you'll see when we get to the next episode. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, I think uh, let's let's go into the rune sack for a question or two um, and see what we got. Sure. You want to do the honors? Yeah, I already have it right here. So I'm just going to need to uh, get these uh, knots untied. And, uh, <laughs> I really don't know what bit you think you're doing here, but I admire the commitment to good old-fashioned radio drama. Uh, I think we need better Foley work, though. I mean, what is the sound of knots being in there? Russell, Russell, Russell uh, Wilson. Impeccable. Impeccable. Yeah, there you go. Okay, here's the letter. Um, this is from our listener, Stephanie, who asked us on Facebook, is there a consensus on how big giants in Norse myth really are. Huh. Sometimes it seems like they are mountain-sized. Other times they have no problem interacting and interbreeding with gods and people. Mm-hmm. Is it just story-specific or is it like understood that they can change their size? Or are we just not supposed to think too hard about the mechanics of how someone who wears a glove two gods could sleep in could then effectively have a conversation with them? Huh. Hi, Stephanie. Uh uh, I mean, the short version is I think you're absolutely right that giants simply don't have a consistent size referent in the sagas or in the myths that inform the sagas. Right. Well, giants is a slippery category in any case. Mm-hmm. In this last episode, we saw trolls and giants being used more or less interchangeably. And in some stories, giant seems to be more a marker of a people than a specific size of a person. Right. So if you remember in Volsathauter... There's a word, uh, murnir, uh, which we translated as giantess, but which has also been translated as troll or ogre. Sure. Now, are we ever going to be able to go two episodes in a row without mentioning that ridiculous story? I wouldn't count on it. Um, Now, Stephanie's asking about the mythic story of Skrimia the giant and the road to Utgard Loki, right? This reference to two gods sleeping in a giant's glove. Now, the myths offer a variety of possibilities for understanding the size or the composition of giants, right? As Stephanie suggests, giants and Asgardians interbreed. Mm-hmm. And then there are very large men who are suspected of troll or giant ancestry in the sagas. On the other hand, sometimes they were enormous. Uh, the giants who build the clay behemoth named Miscalf in the in the myth of uh, Thor's battle with a giant in Hrungnir, for example. Right. This is one of Thor's greatest battles. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also the one where he gets a chunk of uh, whetstone from Hrungnir's club stuck in his head. Yeah. Um, now, Hrungnir's allies essentially make a giant giant to serve yes. as Hrungnir's second in the duel. Story. It's so uh, the uh, Mistcalf is nine leagues high and three leagues wide, yes. which is clearly meant as hyperbole. Right. Well, the entire point of that story is that Miscalf is too large to be practical or functional. He can yeah. barely move. And eventually, uh, when he sees Thor rushing over the horizon toward him, <laughs> he loses control of his bladder and is felled like a tree. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've all had nights like that, Andy. Yes, we uh, have. No, I, but I brought up Miscalf for a reason. Uh, I'd argue that giants get their clearest identity parameters in the myths and eddas, not in the sagas. 
Yeah, so the story that Stephanie's referring to is one of those myths. It's the story of Thor's journey to Utgard-Loki when Thor and Loki spend a night using a shelter that actually turns out to be the glove of the giant Skrymir. Uh-huh. Uh, but the point of that story is ultimately that everything in Utgard, including Skrymir, is being warped and exaggerated by Utgard-Loki's sorcery. Which is a long-winded way of saying that Stephanie's right. There's there's no way a giant Skrumia's size should be able to communicate effectively with the relatively tiny Thor. Of course. But since he only exists in that form in Thor's perception of him, we're probably supposed to just accept him as he is and just roll right. with the punches. Right. Uh, as as Skrumia does, in fact. Uh, now, generally, the most important feature of giants isn't their raw size. It's their opposition to an orderly world. Right. That's really right. key. Uh, giants are utenyard. Uh, they're from outside the dominion of men and gods. They exist as avatars of chaos and entropy. Mm-hmm. Uh, giants destroy stuff. Right. That's their defining characteristic. Their size seems to be a secondary concern. Thanks for the question, Stephanie. Um, now, uh, let's see. I'm still in the sack here. I, we have time for one more. So how about mm-hmm. this one? Here's uh, Jared, who wrote into our email uh, with this question. He writes, Hi, I read O'Connor's translation of Barth's saga, and he translates Barth's father's name as King Mist rather than Dumb. Ah. John, would you mind working your name magic and explaining the difference? Wow. That's a call-out. It sure is. Uh, yeah, last time you said you would deal with this in the nicknames, but it's not really a nickname. It's his actual name. So I think it's a good occasion to tackle mm-hmm. this one. So how about it, John? What do you got? I mean, sure. It's not as exciting as you're building it up to be, but sure. Uh, Very so, rarely do you fulfill the Wow. Uh, uh, well, excitement. given that you give me no build-up or hype whatsoever, uh, I would say that it's hard <laughs> for me to underwhelm after that. There you go. Uh, now, first of all, uh, hi, Jared. Thanks for the question. Uh, I'm with you. Uh, I've seen dumb left as dumb and translated as something like missed as well. Uh, it's like this. We have a handful of sources for working out the meaning of names, but there are always a couple of reasons to be skeptical about the results. For one thing, our standby resources like Zuega or Cleesbian Vigfason, the dictionaries, uh, will often rely on the sagas as proof of a translation or as exempla to show the usage. That's obviously going to be a bit circular as an argument, right? If we're looking for a translation of the name, we can't rely on a translation that refers back to the saga for its explanation. Our other options would include looking at modern Icelandic or digging into the record of how other people, translators, scholars, even other primary sources, how they've treated the name. But that can also be problematic because Mm -hmm. it's not all that unusual to tug on a thread in scholarship and find that the history of an idea is actually just people agreeing with each other or taking one another's suggestions as gospel. Right, yeah, you've anticipated me exactly, which is Mm -hmm. not surprising because I believe you've written on this subject regarding Beowulf. I have indeed. Uh, Now, anyway, uh, all of this is just prelude to say that Dumb's name has three possible meanings, none of which have a particular claim to primacy. The first is that it means dumb as in the historical term for a person incapable of speech. Hmm. That's obviously a problematic term in modern parlance and one that isn't really used any longer. Uh, The second possible meaning is dumb in the derogatory sense of the word in modern usage for a person showing low intelligence. And the third meaning is a sort of collection of interpretations of the name as meaning clouded or dusty or occluded. Uh, And there's a variant word, dumba, which can mean gloomy weather or misty. 
So this is how you can end up with a translator deciding on the translation of mist mm-hmm. by deciding it's a reference to the weather, which actually fits quite nicely because a name that invokes nature makes a fair amount of sense for a troll king whose son will turn out to be a landvater, uh, a land spirit. Yes. Uh, now, so if we take the name Dumshaf, which uh, in Barth Saga, that region gets its name from King Dum. But in reality, it's generally understood to mean something like the foggy sea or the misty sea. So ultimately, I think with this name, it really just depends on which etymological trail your translator decided had the tastiest breadcrumbs. Mm. All right. Well, that's all been very fun. Uh, but tomorrow is a school day. It's time to wrap yep. things up, John. We've got to get our sleep. Um, but we would uh, we would love to hear from you about this saga, as always, or any of the sagas. Yeah, if you've got a question, a comment, or a furious and righteous anger at the idea of another episode of this saga, let us know. Yeah. You can reach us at sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, on Twitter at sagathingpod, or on Facebook where we are sagathingpodcast. We are also on Instagram at sagathingpodcast now and then, or you can reach us at our email address, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can challenge us to a joints of meat food fight in the meat hall and try to write your questions in the resulting mess. That's gross. Um, we'd also like to thank Brian Faust for yet another great uh, image uh, oh, and yes. illustration of the uh, the saga. Um, we're looking forward to seeing what else he can come up with uh, in our next episode. <laughs> uh, you can follow him on uh, Scarpathen Illustrator. That is Scarpathen underscore Illustrator on Instagram. Check him Excellent. out. Uh, we're going to be back soon. And until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. much more because I think it's going to actually make me bleed from the mouth. <laughs>